continuing on our Time Traveller series. We're talking about tech today, and we're with Rob Tillis, the owner of Factor Bikes and Black Ink Components and Wheels. I've known Rob for a few years um, since he launched Factor, and I've always had a very close relationship since they started in 2015, and I consider them to be the best performance bikes in the world. Uh, and we learn a bit more from Rob about how he got to where he is, uh, 20 plus years in Taiwan, leading the industry and in many ways defining it. So enjoy the listen. Uh, head over to chapter3.com because at the moment we're running an archive sale and you'll get uh, 40% off everything. And stay tuned because we have an amazing collection launching in the next week. So, Mikkel, today yeah. we're joined by Rob Jatillis, the owner, CEO of Factor Bikes, and we're going to talk tech. Oh, that's great. <laughs> My favorite subject. Yeah, you love it. And Rob's. <laughs> he kind of hides from it, though. Uh, but, Rob, before we kind of get into that, because I, I think that the point of this is for us to eventually get to the magic of the Hanso. But uh, first of all, you know, this is about the, the challenge that I've set myself, which, to be honest, has been a little bit buggered the last week because I got COVID. So I've had like seven, eight days off, which isn't ideal. Um, but that's fine. We'll recalibrate somehow. But talking of challenges, uh, you've probably done one a lot stupider than me recently. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about that. Um. You know, every year with sort of Strava, you sort of set your your yearly goal. And in 2020, I had ridden 20,000 kilometers, and I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing. Um, but obviously, it was because I couldn't travel at all. 2021, still no traveling, but I had only given myself the goal of riding 15,000 kilometers. And I realized with about a month to go that I wasn't even going to achieve that. And then I was speaking with uh, my sales manager, John Epson, and I'm like, you know, we should give ourselves a big challenge to finish the end of the year. We should ride 100K a day for the 31 days of December to close out the year, which will get me over 15,000 kilometers. And we should invite everybody, you know, on Strava to do it with us. And, um, and we should, you know, raise some money for charity. So we raised some money for Phil Guyman's charity. And so the other challenge of that is, as we know, riding 100 kilometers a day is actually not that hard. Riding 100 kilometers a day and being at work by 9 o'clock is very hard. <laughs> <laughs> and so that was the other part of the challenge, at least for John and myself, was we really, you know, couldn't, uh, couldn't you know, take the day off of work to go do this for a month. So, you know, we were, we were pretty much out there at 5.30, 6 o'clock every day, uh, rain or shine. Luckily, we only had a couple of days of rain. Um, I built, I did a really big ride pretty early on to try to get a little buffer knowing Christmas was coming and the holidays. So I did a, I did a 200 kilometer ride on like the second or third day. And then I pretty much stayed true to that hundred kilometers a day. But, uh, I had to in some ways give you credit in the sense that you often talk about making it, um, what is it? A social contract. Mm. And I, I must've had maybe... 200, 300 followers on Strava when, you know, for my whole career of cycling. But then all of a sudden I had like 7,000 people following me on Strava. Oh. And so I was like, oh shit, people actually care. <laughs> and 
And so I'm like, okay, I, I really need to do this and I really can't fail, which I wanted to do a couple of times. But yeah, it was, it was okay. And it really, you know, it, it really reminded me why, why I work in this industry and why I like to ride bikes. I mean, it's still, it, it was more of a, I would say it was more of a uh, scheduling challenge than a physical challenge because, you know, you can go ride 100K in three, three and a half hours if it's flat. You know, that's not the hard part. It's uh, how to do it and then be at work by nine o'clock and then not be wasted for the rest of the day. So, yeah. Jesus, yeah, but, and you managed to do it. Uh, actually, we're 32 minute kilometers. So, yeah. Had a, <laughs> another yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it was funny. So, January 1st rolled around and I'm like, I just kept on riding. Unfortunately, February, March hasn't been so great. And um, I think, you know, like, like all of us, you know, I think it's, I think it's this really vicious cycle of cycling in the sense that um, as Dave has visited Taiwan a couple of times, he'll attest, it's not flat here. And it really is not fun to go ride if you're not fit. But then if you're not fit, you don't go ride and it just becomes this, this really yes. vicious circle, as I call it, of you don't go ride because you're not fit and you don't get fit because you don't go ride. And, um, no. yeah. It's really just the first three rides that makes or breaks it, doesn't it? It it really is. It's kind of like running. I love running, but you got to get past the first week. And if you don't get past the first week, it's like starting over every single time. There was this, I remember reading this recently about something. It's um, these people who just never take days off, uh, just keep going. And the logic of it kind of makes sense because if you break the cycle, you kind of, it's almost easier to do every day then give yourself days off. Mm-hmm. And that was when, cause I was following you, we were messaging during your, um, during that crazy month. And the fact that you, and this is what, I mean, we'll, we'll get back to this. The fact that you got to December 31st and felt like you could just carry on. Mm-hmm. Just a testament to how quickly the body adapts. As, absolutely. And I, I think we might even seen some of our peers that when they, re, when they stopped cycling as a career, but they continued riding they still, you know, they re- they remain very fit their entire lives, mm. and then there's those that stop riding. A couple of years pass, and then you see how sort of difficult it is to restart yeah. as you're it's, discovering yourself. As I, this, which is the reason I'm doing this, is one of the yeah. reasons. But uh, Rob, go back to the beginning because I think it's really interesting your story because you are uh, you stay very much in the shadows, um, and yet you have such an amazing history in cycling that very few people know about. And I think it would be really cool to kind of start at the beginning from Miami and, and how you got into it. Well, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I grew up in Miami in the eighties, uh, cocaine cowboy days. Um, but that also <laughs> meant it was one of like the first places in America where cycling was actually somewhat popular because there's such a strong South American connection there. And so I started, you know, racing my bike as a, as a, 13, 12, 13 years old, I think was the first time I raced. And I was very lucky that um, I I had a close relationship with Chris and Kevin Carmichael. Uh, Chris, who later went on to develop the Carmichael training systems. And so Chris is about, I think, six or eight years older than me. So I always had someone who was already racing at elite level to sort of look up to, to follow, to get some instruction. And, you know, I raced at a pretty high level, but I was never a great bike racer. And so the decision to stop uh, racing bikes and to, to start working here in Taiwan was a pretty easy one for me. And so, you know, that was in 1996. 
Um, now, 26 years ago, when I, when I made that decision, I was here racing the tour of Taiwan, visiting my girlfriend. There was, there was a, a few uh, serendipitous uh, events that all sort of led to me staying here. And, um, you know, in 1996, there really wasn't a high-end bicycle industry here yet, but you could sense it was probably on the way. Um, so I actually was able to get a job at one of two carbon fiber factories that existed at the time. There's now probably 100, 200, but this was the very first one. And so I've been part of carbon fiber ever since it basically became an industry. But were you an engineer at that time or how did you get into that sort of thing? Um, I, studied, I studied chemical engineering at school, but really it was more about um, I was here racing bikes and I wanted to, to stay in Taiwan. And there was a lot of companies that wanted to get into this industry, but they, they knew what a bicycle looked like, but they didn't know how it should work. And, you know, they didn't really understand the function of it. And so I was more brought, not so much because of my chemical engineering. It was more about um, I knew how to ride bikes. Um, I knew how to use them. And I had a willingness to be here in Taiwan. And honestly, I was, uh, I was given a few jobs that, you know, people would ask me, do you, can you do this? And I'd be like, sure, no, no problem. And I had no idea what I was doing. Absolutely not. <laughs> just like those, David. <laughs> yeah, just like those. <laughs> I'll figure it out. You know, this is pre-YouTube, pre, you know, I remember we had a dial-up, you know, web uh, dial-up, what was it called? A modem, a 14.2 modem or something like that in my first place. You know, so it wasn't so easy to get information, but I figured it out. And so, you know, I worked for a few different companies and then I started my own. And then speaking like of serendipitous moments, you know, one night I was working late um, at the carbon fiber factory, the first one I was working at, and these two guys called me up and they were like, hey, we're interested in learning more about making, you know, carbon fiber bicycle. And so we spoke for like a half hour and it was like, um, and it was just very odd that I was even in the company because it was already like eight o'clock at night when these guys were calling. Um, and they just handed the phone to me because these guys were speaking English and, uh, and so I get to talking to them. I let them know the cost. I let them know some ideas around it. And, um, you know, at that time they said to me, yeah, it's a lot more money than we expected, but, you know, it's, uh, it's very good to learn about this and we'll keep in touch. And uh, I'm like, great, let's keep in touch. And later I started my own company and I got back in touch with these two guys who happened to be Phil White and Gerard Roman of Cervella. No. <laughs> And so <laughs> I basically, you know, from the very first bicycle that they made all the way through selling the company, I was their guy here in Taiwan, either manufacturing bikes for them or getting bikes made for them, as well as components, you name it. You know, I was, I was kind of like the, uh, the third member of the team, but I was always very much behind the scenes. And yeah, so obviously, as Cervelo grew, my company grew as well. And so we were very lucky in that regard. I mean, you, you skipped over just before that, Rob, the fact that you did race at top level pro briefly in Europe, which yeah. is which is why you have those insights. It's that kind of that weird alchemy of the, the chemical engineering, top level racing, the serendipitous kind of series of events that led you to Taiwan that mm -hmm. kind of made this possible. Because it's, as you say, I, I think there's something as well interesting, which I learned from kind of spending time with you and looking a bit into the bike industry was how 
Taiwan decided to make this decision to make uh, elite uh, carbon fiber production kind of trying to do differentiate differentiate itself from from China um, mm. because China obviously you could get the volume but it was mm. actually a governmental decision wasn't it to in Taiwan it was a combination of things if you remember probably the 80s um, the bicycle industry still belonged to Japan and so you know that's back when Suntour was very strong or those sort of brands um, those Japanese companies decided to move to Taiwan um, their production and so it was sort of like this technology transfer between Japan and Taiwan. China hadn't really even entered the picture yet, except for very entry level bicycles. But the difference is, you know, Taiwan, you know, obviously with Giant and Merida, you know, these very, you know, they were very small companies at that time, but they were able to grow up quite quickly with the help of the Japanese. Because um, the Japanese, um, traditionally, they don't hang on to industries because even like if you think about it, shoes were even made in Japan. Like I believe it was, you know, Nike's first uh, factory was actually yeah. in Japan. Yeah. And so but, but the Japanese, they don't hang on to industries. They pass industries to other countries once they feel like they've outgrown them. And so Taiwanese are a little bit different in the fact that like even though the industry has moved to China, now Cambodia and Vietnam, they held on to the industry. So even there in these other countries, there's still Taiwanese owned factories in those countries, while the Japanese sort of let it go. Um, and so as far as like the carbon fiber aspect went, you know, the Taiwanese had really figured out tennis rackets and golf club shafts from the carbon fiber. Also, they took that from Japan. And so this was sort of like the next evolution of the carbon fiber was figuring out a more complex design, such as a bicycle. And with the, um, so this is what, uh, I mean, having grown up in Hong Kong, I spent my adolescence there, it's, it's, it's actually quite rare to find um, a European, parenthes, who really does uh, kind of take a step out of that expat kind of world and mm -hmm. completely, because uh, <laughs> you married a Taiwanese woman, you've, you speak Mandarin, you've, you're fully kind of embedded and it's, I, I always find that amazing because there's so few, uh, well, Hong Kong said Guilongs, but white people that actually do that. How, how difficult has that been for you and how, how much has that affected you over the years? Well, I would say, you know, I don't know that I've ever been completely accepted here um, as a local, but I think that I've definitely, you know, made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to be the, 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 the thumb sticking out of the room of the foreigner who needed, you know, everybody to help him. And obviously I've used it to my advantage quite a bit of, yes, I learned Chinese, but I don't always let on. And so I, I love sitting in on the conversation where they're talking about price or this or that. And I just kind of just sit there and smile. And then, yeah. And, uh, but that doesn't happen very often because I'm pretty well known nowadays, yeah. but, you know, and I don't really have to do that anymore, but I think it's, I, obviously it's been very helpful, but I think it was more about like, it's kind of, you know, very early on, I went to Europe and I'm like, I, I went and visited Fausto Penarello and, you know, I'm like, Hey, you know, do you need help getting stuff made in Taiwan? I can help you. Fausto didn't want anything to do with Taiwan. It's like, that was a strange place. And, uh, and so he was very happy. You know, I, I remember once I was, you know, with Cristiano De Rosa and he's like, can you help me order the noodles al dante? And I'm like, oh, I hate this is Taiwan. <laughs> nope. 
And so this is going back to kind of your decision, because obviously you'd spent, oh, what would it, it must have been then nearly 18 years, nearly two decades, kind of from, from 1996 to 2016. And what was your decision to finally, considering you were making bikes for everybody else and some of the best bikes in the world, what was the decision to, to have your own brand? Um, I, there was a couple things. It was, um, I, I was working, you know, I had a very nice business making, I was making bikes for Cervelo, for Santa Cruz, for Rocky Mountain, for BH. I was making components for Trek and Zip and Envy. Um, but then there became sort of this consolidation in the marketplace where these big companies like Pond would come in and they would buy, you know, multiple brands. Uh, in my case, I was building bikes, as I said, for Cervelo, Santa Cruz, and Focus, and Pond comes and buys all three of them. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, it went from, I had a really good relationship with the, with the entrepreneur founders of those companies to just being a supplier. And so, you know, rather than... I, you know, people used to contact me, Rob, this is the frame we want to make. This is what we want to do. And we would finish the whole project and I would tell them what it would cost at the end. And everybody was happy and it was great quality and great delivery. Um, Pawn or Tram or any of these companies all came along and they'd send me a request for a quote. And I'm like, it's called an RFQ. And I'm like, what is this? They're like, oh, when yeah. you get the opportunity to bid on this project, we're sending it out to 10 different people. And uh, whoever is the lowest bidder will get the project. And I'm like, well, you only need to send it to nine because I am interested. And, uh, you know, and so that was really sort of the impetus was this big consolidation in the industry. And the other thing is I wanted a little bit of a lifestyle change myself. Um, I felt like I had really helped when I look at, like, say, Andy Horton, he sold Zip or the founders of Cervelo. They sold, you know, Cervelo or the founders of Envy sold Envy. And I was really a important part of all those brands being built but in some ways i felt kind of left behind and, and don't get me wrong i earned a very good living but i didn't get that huge payday i still had a job at the end of it while they were all okay i'm done and so uh it, it was so you didn't get the money and you had to answer all these requests for proposals at the same time <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I, i understand you <laughs> yeah yeah that's that's very much like Mikkel's background as well yeah uh -huh. helping some of the biggest brands in the world and then <laughs> but it is interesting how um when things get professionalized so to speak and and then a lot of the trust that is between a supplier and a, a, a brand can sort of disappear because a lot of it is human right Absolutely. And, and that's really what I had. It was, you know, I, I was dealing with the owners of the companies and I was, you know, and many times I was telling them, no, we're not going to do that because your decision is wrong. And they'd be like, okay, we're going to follow you. And, you know, but now you have these other companies that really are just focused on price. And, 
you can look at most of those companies I mentioned and you can see, I mean, are they in a better place today than when um, than they were sold? I'm not so sure. So. Hmm. But Rob, so can you tell us a little bit about um, Factor today? Because it's a, it's an amazing brand, and just tell us about it. Right. Sure. Well, I mean, Factor. Um, there's two brands. There's Factor and Black Ink. So Black Ink is my component brand that I started from scratch. Factor was a brand that I bought from uh, BF1 Systems from the UK, which was um, they had done some collaborative work with Aston Martin to create the Factor 001. And so essentially what we bought was only a brand, but I always felt it was easier to buy something that had some brand recognition than starting from scratch. And so, you know, I had looked at several main brands, you know, whether it be Concord or Rossine, some really like older heritage brands. And I thought about what it could have been like to, to get one of those, but kind of settled on Factor because it was more modern sounding. And I thought that, you know, it was also the most relevant. And so... Um, as David knows really well, we, um, I started it with three partners. One was Baden Cook, um, and the other was a guy named Kel McCulloch. Um, both of them fell out rather early um, at sort of different, different phases of it, you know, mostly having to put more money in or actually do some work, um, both, <laughs> both stressful things. Um, thankfully, Kel came back in later, um, which was good. But um, we started by sponsoring um, a pro continental team called One Pro Cycling um, that was even before we were ever selling bikes. And so what I realized, and I realize it much more now than I did then, was that making the bikes was the easy part. The difficult part was actually having a sales channel with which to sell them. So I made some great bikes, but I had really no way of selling them. And it probably took two to three years, I would say, to really have an understanding of, okay, this is what you had to do to actually sell these things because the making part was pretty easy. And so, you know, we went from sponsoring one pro cycling to sponsoring AG2R, Le Mondial, you know, world tour team, just, you know, I think it was like 11 months after founding the brand, um, which was pretty crazy and pretty expensive, but I think it's really led to, you know, the popularity of the brand and it really showed, you know, it put us on the biggest stage right from the very beginning. Obviously, you know, that was now we're we just passed six years uh, in January. The company is in a lot different place today than it was uh, a couple of years ago. It's been kind of uh, uh, we, we went through some rough times. You know, there was times where I wasn't sure this was a great idea. Um, thankfully, you know, we got to a really nice place and we received an investment from uh, from Chris Frome and Scott Farquhar two great investors that really believe in what we're doing. And uh, we're in a really nice place now. Hmm. And, the, and, uh, and when you, yeah. when, when you encounter facts, obviously you notice it straight away, but also on your website and so on, it's all about speed, isn't it? Like that's how you have sort of positioned it. We look at racing as our heritage coming from Formula One, which is what BF1 was. It was a Formula One telemetry and manufacturing company. And so we really look at, you know, racing as our heritage. Racing is what I love. Racing is what everybody loves, as well as we all ride bicycles in the company. We're not a bunch of marketeers. We are basically engineers that ride bicycles is, is what you have in our company. I think we're probably one of the most educated uh, bicycle companies in the industry. <laughs> when you think that, you know, my COO went to Wharton, 
Um, another gentleman on my board of directors has a Harvard MBA. So, uh, you know, there's not too many people like that in this industry. So I consider ourselves really lucky. Mm. When you, this is, so when we first started, because obviously we met in 2015 and that was when you were just taking over the remnants of Factor and yeah. you kind of kept some of those design cues. But then it wasn't, when did you feel that your first, because I, I remember the O2 and you said, this is what the R5 could have been. Yeah. I, I still remember that because you were like, and I still remember mm-hmm. this line you said, now you've got factor, you can make the bikes you always wanted to. You're always right. holding something back when you're working with the other partners. Yeah, it wasn't always, it wasn't so much that we were holding something back. It was that we were always cost constrained. So, mm. you know, I would go to someone like Castrovello and I would say, okay, this is the bike, but for $50 more, it could be X amount better. And they'd be like, absolutely not. We can't pay that extra $50. Um, with Factor, we put that extra $50 into the product. So we, we don't draw the line of like, this is uh, the cost that it has to be. We first work on the goals of this is what the product has to be. And then whatever the cost is, the cost is. And then, you know, a lot of times our selling price maybe doesn't, manu- doesn't match our manufacturing costs. But since we are the factory, we have a lot more room than, say, other brands because um, I, I don't have to purchase the product from someone else to then sell it on. I basically am taking it on my own factory. So I just decide where's the profit center and I don't make the factory a profit center. Hmm. And with the, the, the bikes, I mean, I guess this is a ridiculous question because you'll never be happy. There's always something else. Which of your bikes so far are you proudest of with factor? Um, it's pretty much every bike. It's, 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 you know, the famous N plus one, it's always whatever the plus one is, you know, it's like right now the Astro is an amazing bike, but obviously I know what's coming next. And so I think that, you know, we're always putting our best foot forward no matter what we do. And so Astro has been, it's been a commercial success and it's an amazing bike. Um, I personally, uh, it's not the bike I ride. I ride the O2. I'm a little bit uh, getting on in the years, and I really like uh, a little softer ride, and I'm not that worried about how fast I go. So, you know, I ride the O2, but I think the, the Astro is an amazing bike. And then obviously... Yeah, I still ride uh, my O2. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I was just saying, I still ride my O2. That's still my favorite bike. So, so yeah, do I. Yeah, you've got yeah. I've got one. Yeah, as well. Yeah, um, Yeah. I love it. Yeah, you guys actually have the the older iteration of the O2, so it's actually been iterated one time since the. But that's the better one. Do you know that, Rob? They're all all the better ones. (laughs) Can Can I ask you what's um, this? Is maybe a difficult question, but I've been wondering when you look at an industry like the bike industry and you see. I mean, if you, let's say you, you fell asleep and woke up five years later and come up, all the bikes look different now, right? What happened? Like, what is it that's driving innovation and new thinking and new designs, new engineering in, in, in the biking industry? Well, I think that obviously the materials have evolved, but you know, it's kind of funny you say that, but yet, you know, I have a 1972 Eddie Merckx, an orange one, and I look at it. And that 1972 bike isn't that dissimilar to the bike that David was riding in probably 1996. Mm -hmm. Um, Very, very similar. And it was only around 1996 to where we are now that I think we've seen such huge jumps 
but I think the bike, you know, the bikes for a very long time were, were quite, quite stagnant. Um, I just think that, you know, obviously a lot more, um, industry players, you know, if you think about it, you know, there wasn't specialized, there wasn't Trek. It was all a very much a European based, um, industry. And I don't really feel like they were quite the innovators, uh, as the people who have, you know, joined since 96 into say like the world tour, like the Cannondales or the Treks or the specialized that all kind of came along late nineties. And I think that's, what's really sort of driven a lot of the innovation. Right. I mean, you hit a very soft point there because um, my first bike was a Eddie Merckx bike from 1970-something. Right. But Remember the, the, the but orange one? But that's mine. It's also orange. Except yeah, I, don't yeah. think he gave, I don't think he gave yours to you. So. No, I think you have a better one, definitely. <laughs> I, I just miss it. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So at David's studio... There is a um, time trial bike that you actually used, David, last time. Yeah. Yeah, that's they got the uh, yeah the the slick. So that's and, the, um, the first iteration. And you're designing a new one, I heard. We have a new one. Um, it was launched at the Tour de France in uh, this last year. Um, part of Chris from um, joining Israel Premier Tech, as it's called now. Um, part of in his agreement was he wanted to be part of a new time trial development because the time trial is such an important part of, you know, his racing commerce. So, you know, that was part of the agreement the team had with Chris and we worked very closely with Chris in developing the Hanzo. Um, we were kind of lucky in the sense that the UCI also changed the rules um, while we were in the development stage of the bike. And so, you know, they took away some of the constraints of the three-to-one rule. Um, and so it allowed us to be the very first um, new bike to come out that um, followed those new rules. And as I know now, I don't think anyone has still brought a new uh, time trial bike since the rules except for us so far. And the three-to-one rule, to explain to our listeners, that's where it was a proportion of the tubes. Uh, that's that's correct. So the, the narrow, the narrowest the tube can be is 25 millimeters. So that would mean, so the narrowest it could be is 25. So then the widest it could be is 75. So they took away that constraint, but then there's still some boxes that they've created, these arbitrary lines that's part of the UCI. So you, you still have to fit inside of those boxes, but it's still what it, what it enabled you to do was have much longer cord lengths, um, say like in the head tube box, um, where, you know, right behind the fork. So it allowed the airflow, uh, the air, the airflow or the, the airfoils to be a lot, a lot deeper than they were before. And regards, because a lot of our listeners are geeks like all of us, how is the Hanzo comparing to, to other bikes out there? Um, we went to, we've been to the wind tunnel three times. Um, we went to the wind tunnel with those bikes that we felt were the current industry leaders um, from other World Tour teams. And uh, the Hanzo was, was clearly faster um, than those other World Tour uh, winning bikes. So we're, we're very happy with those results. Um, and, I'm very uh, happy with those results as well, Rob. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And we're all watching you, David. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the Hanzo is, I, I would also say, probably one of the, the only true time trial bikes to be released in quite a while. If you look at most companies, what they're producing is triathlon bikes that um, have to be then, you know, sort of modified or, you know, used as a, as a time trial bike. Well, the Hanzo is only for time trial. We, we had no consideration about hydration or storage, uh, any of that. You know, you can only use one water bottle. Um, there's not even room for two water bottles. Um, we just wanted the fastest bike possible. And did you take, because I know this is always what I found with your bikes, was how you prioritize handling. Um, because a lot of the aero bikes, I mean, this is a few years ago, and I suppose this is one of the, the questions I have for you. With that he racing heritage you have personally, and then also the engineering and the experience, did, has that always been a focus for you with factors to make bikes that racers love? I think even more so. I think um, our head of engineering now, his name is Graham Shreve. Graham came to us after 10 years of the head of engineering at Cervelo. And so Graham has a, an even stronger understanding than, say, myself or Inigo does of, of geometry. And so, yes, it's very much we believe, you know, it doesn't, if you could have a super fast bike, but if it's too difficult to control, then you can't go as fast. So we really think about, you know, the geometry and the, and the, um, uh, the trail of the bike, the way the bike will handle so that, you know, we really want it to be very stable so that you can, you know, really focus on putting out the max amount of power, uh, without having to concern yourself with, uh, the controlling the bike, especially on a TT bike, as we know that they're getting harder and harder to control. Mm. And with the, um, cause I guess this is the, the advantage you have as well, not only owning the, the frame design manufacturing but also the components in the wheels mm -hmm. what about the uh, have you done work with black ink on tt wheels we developed a wheel to go along with the hanzo and other world tour teams have already heard and seen the wheel and have actually been sending us requests for samples that they want to buy so we're also super excited about that so um you know i think that the work we're doing you know everybody sort of talks in the world tour as you know and so, um, you know, we're, we're getting a lot of requests from other teams um, for disc wheels um, at the moment. And I think, you know, when we look at the Hanzo, one of the goals around it was to really simplify it. So if we compare the Hanzo to the Slick, we took away 85% of all of the assembly parts. And so when you look at it, it's super, super simplified. And so that's also, you know, a big savings of weight, but also it just really makes a much more simple system for assembly. Because if you look at it closely, there actually is no, um, there's no riser on the handlebar. The handlebar is connected directly to the fork. And so probably looking at Alex Dowsett's um, hour record attempt, it's, since it's a, a track bike, it's probably the most easy to see exactly what was going on. <laughs> Elegant. And what's, what's next for Factor, Rob? What's, I mean, because you started obviously as a, a, a pure road racing <laughs> brand what's 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 next when's this podcast going up uh we can do it we can wait when uh, when, when mountain, bike, mountain, mountain bike launch is uh on the 31st 31st we can we can 
perhaps hold this and just do some sound bites okay. and put it out a bit later. Yeah. yeah. So, so maybe, you can tell us about that. We may as well talk about that then while we're here. <laughs> well, there's two reasons to talk about it. But first, you know, I can let everybody know that we're launching mountain bikes on, uh, on the 31st of this month. Um, when we started Factor six years ago, it was always our goal to be the number one premium bicycle brand. It wasn't necessarily to be the only road brand, but to be the premium bicycle. So that also includes mountain bikes. And so um, this month we're launching a hardtail as well as a 120 millimeter suspension uh, wow. bike called the Lando. And then we're following that later in the summer with a 140 travel um, called the Lando LT, oh. a long oh, travel wow. bike. And so with that, you know, David asked me to race um, yeah, uh, God. Cape Epic next year. Uh, I think it's easy for you. You only had to ride as fast as me. So for you, that'll be easy. Oh, come on. It's it's really hard, Cape Epic, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we can put it... I'll, I'm definitely up. I'd love to do it. I've been talking about it for a little while. I'd be fun doing it with you. It would be good. I'm up for it. And my family, my, my wife's family's down there. Mm-hmm. So, so I think we, go we should through. do it. Yeah. Okay, we'll commit. There you go. There's a There's social a contract of ever. Exactly. Yeah. Rob Tillis <laughs> and David Miller are going to do Cape Epic together in 2023. Uh-huh. Game on. Ooh. All right. It's on. It's happening. And how, just so, quickly to conclude, what was, was that a huge leap going, building mountain bikes from scratch? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't. Um, we are not, you know, experts in kinematics, obviously. You know, our strength lies in carbon fiber and road bike design. But I think what we did is we worked with a really good um, partner for some of the engineering for the kinematics. Um, But obviously, when you see the mountain bike, it's very much a factor. It's very much smooth lines. It's very much, you know, looking at who our customer is. I think that was really the way we we address getting into mountain bikes was who is our customer. And so, you know, like yourself is riding mountain bikes. You know, we've seen this huge convergence in the whole cycling circle, right? Because people aren't just riding road or mountain or gravel. They're riding everything. And I love that. And so I think, you know, this is the right time for us to be launching a mountain bike. And, you know, as I said earlier in the podcast, you know, I used to make Santa Cruz, Pivot, Rocky Mountain. So again, the manufacturing of the mountain bike isn't the more difficult part. It's really, Hmm. you know, how to make it really a factor product and then bring it to the market. Yeah. It's it's interesting you say that, Rob, because it's it's what Mikkel and I have seen and, and what we're slowly trying to do a chapter three is become essentially an all cycling brand because I mountain bike, I rode, I'm going to do the occasional crazy time trial now. Uh, I got the Bromptons for commuting. It's just cycling is just part of life. And, and you know, from when we started, well, for me, for me, it was the nineties. You were already racing pro at that point, but everyone was so just blinkered to their discipline and you almost weren't allowed to be a road rider and a mountain biker. Or you, if you rode a folding bike, you're a clown. Whereas these days you can have all those bikes are part of your life. So I think it's brilliant that you guys are doing that because it's definitely, well, people are changing. They're starting, those barriers are starting to drop down. Yeah. And I would say that, you know, we're, we address the mountain bike the same way that we address, you know, World Tour Cycling. You know, we have four American professionals that are all riding. They're part of that new... Uh, uh, Lifetime Grand Prix, which is mm-hmm. a series of gravel and mountain bike races. And I think they only allowed in 30 professionals and we have four mm-hmm. of those 30. So, 
have a pretty good odds there of staying a result. And then we're also working with this new East African team, which to me is the most exciting. Um, it's these riders from East Africa that um, we're going to be bringing them over to, to race gravel events in the U.S. They're going to be in Girona. You know, it's really trying to expose athletes that would have never had this kind of opportunity to really, you know, race at the higher level to understand, you know, can they get there or not? In fact, we, we actually think they can. We think these are some amazing athletes that just never really had the opportunity. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, thank you, Rob. That's been brilliant. And I think hopefully that's uh, that will have opened the minds of our listeners a bit more about Factor because I think it's important that people know the man behind it because it's a really rich history in the sport and pretty educational as well because it's uh, it's easy just to look at these bikes and and as you said, with all those brands that get bought out by the by the kind of these holding companies, Factor is still very much almost an old school brand, although at the cutting edge. And yeah. I think that's really cool. Thanks. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. Nice to meet yeah, you. Yeah, it's nice to meet you, Mikhail. I've, I've heard your voice so many times now. I, I didn't put a face oh, I see. <laughs> but I, this is how I look. <laughs>